You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG 13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to. Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome to Women of Tomorrow. I'm Laura Bell Bundy. And I'm Shay Carter. And, and we, we are, are partners, partners in, in Feminist, feminist crime. crime. Today's episode is called Money. Let's get down to business. A look at women's equality through her pocketbook. Because she is worth it. And speaking of equality, on this episode, we are interviewing Carol Jenkins, the president of the ERA Coalition. Please stick around for that interview. Our song, Money Ho, is about money. Why we don't have enough of it, how we are enslaved by it, and how power seems to be just out of reach due to it. Money Ho is shining a giant light on the injustices women face around money. From equal pay to the pink tax, we are fed up with working the hardest and having the least. We're in the money. If women made the money, it'd be bamboo leaves. Eat that apple, girl, take it like Eve. There's a snake on the dollar bill, can't you see? First a lady tried to get a ballot in that box. Now her name is on the ballot, go and check it off. Little girl grew up, learned to buy. Never take six cents for a dime. Let's get down to business. Let's get down to business. Money. Let's get down to business. Money. No lying. 
talk about money, y'all. Not only do women on average make 20 to 40% less than white men, our domestic service is taken for granted. We naturally take on more child rearing and household duties and then spend more money beautifying ourselves just to look presentable enough to be taken seriously or just to leave the house. Her haircut and highlights cost 350 bucks. His haircut, $35. But the reality is, that a woman's time does not carry the same monetary value in our society as a man's. And the workload? Ugh, the to-dos, they just keep coming. What will it take to even the playing field for equality? Let's get down to business. 40,000 years ago, our first female was a natural forager, able to manage the task of gathering nuts and berries while breastfeeding her young. Hunting large prey would have been quite difficult with an infant, so... The men did it. Both hunting and gathering would have been equally important to their survival, making both sexes equal in value. Then one day, a super savvy lady noticed that plants grew from little seeds, and in around 10,000 BC, crops started to be cultivated, most likely by chicks. It was now necessary to protect the crops, so communities began to stay in one place. Men took over agriculture and the herding of animals, and the women developed the art of spinning and weaving wool into cloth. The livestock and land became his. These men began to accumulate property, a.k.a. currency, a.k.a. money. This property gave him power. If a man wanted to pass his possessions on to his kids, he would have to make sure they were his. That's when strict laws against female adultery and the seclusion of females begin as an attempt to ensure the lines of legitimate offspring and establish lines of inheritance. Yeah, and how do you do this? You make her your property too, and her children. Some ancient civilizations allowed women to own property and earn money like men, and some did not. In colonial times, the rules of coverture adopted from England were the norm, setting rules and standards about women and money. Under the doctrine of coverture, a woman was legally considered the possession of her husband, his. Any property she might hold before her marriage became her husband's on her wedding day, and she had no legal right to appear in court, to sign contracts, or to do any business. And although these formal provisions of the law were sometimes ignored, the wives of tradesmen, for example, might assist in running the family business, but married women technically had almost no legal identity. We can all say that capitalism rules when it comes to the way America has operated over the last several hundred years, including the capture and enslavement of Africans to build its wealth. And that included amassing wealth from all women's free domestic labor and not allowing married women to control their wages or property, directly affecting not just her financial freedom, but her freedom, period. 
The Married Women's Property Act in 1848 and the Act Concerning the Rights and Liabilities of Husband and Wife in 1860 expanded the property rights of married women. Under these set of laws, women could conduct business on their own, own property, control their own inheritance left to them by their family, earn and control their own working wage, have sole ownership of the gifts they received, and file lawsuits. They acknowledged mothers as joint guardians of their children, along with fathers. This allowed married women to finally have legal authority over their own sons and daughters. By year 1900, most women could own property. Victoria Woodhull was the first woman to run for U.S. president. Before this, she was a fortune teller and a financial advisor to Cornelius Vanderbilt. She and her sister Tenny, short for Tennessee, were co-founders of Wall Street's first female brokerage firm. They were also newspaper publishers, advocating radical feminist views called free love. And I guess it was radical to be against marital rape at the time. The radical view essentially consisted of her simply advocating for consensual sex and that a woman should be able to divorce if she fell out of love with her husband or if he beat her. Divorce was scandalous at the time. She was a suffragette and founder of her own political party. She ran for president and announced the abolitionist Frederick Douglass as her running mate. He never confirmed. But she ran for president 50 years before it was legal for her to vote. Woodhull argued that women already had the right to vote. All they had to do was use it. Since the 14th and 15th Amendments granted the right to all citizens, gender was not specified in either amendment. She believed that all men are created equal applied to her and other women, but they're not being allowed to vote showed us otherwise. And that is why the passing for an equal rights amendment is so necessary. The constitution must explicitly state that it will not discriminate on the basis of sex. She was jailed on election day for publishing filth about a clergyman and many lies have been made up about her. She's been villainized and called the devil, and we have seen this happen to almost every female politician or leader in history. It was a commonly held belief at the time that women did not know how to handle money. But Hetty Green could certainly prove you wrong. She was called the Witch of Wall Street, also known as the richest woman in America in the Gilded Age. She was listed in the Guinness Book of World Records as the world's greatest miser. She was born in 1834 in Massachusetts, and her family was the richest whaling family in the city. She was reading financial papers to her father by the age of six, and at 13, she became the family bookkeeper. Her father sold the whaling business and invested in others, and left her with a trust fund when he passed, which was the equivalent of $100 million today. She grew that money, and before marrying her husband, they had an agreement that he did not have a right to any of her money. That would be called a prenup today. She said, It is the duty of every woman, I believe, to learn to take care of her own business affairs, and a girl should be brought up as to be able to make her own living. Whether rich or poor, a young woman should know how a bank account works, understand the composition of mortgages and bonds, and know the value of interest and how it accumulates. But Hetty could save some money, honey. Her thriftiness was legendary. It was said that she never turned on the heat or used the hot water. In fact, she would use the radiator to heat up oatmeal. She ate mostly pies that cost 15 cents. One tale claims that she spent half a night searching her carriage for a lost stamp worth two cents. 
She wore an old black dress and undergarments that she only changed after they'd been worn out, and she instructed her laundress to wash only the dirtiest parts of her dresses, the hems, to save money on soap. She really was a miser. But in 1905, Hetty was New York's largest lender and had bailed New York City out numerous times. She also gave boatloads of money to charity, but preferred to do so discreetly. So while she did save money, she spent money on important things that she cared about. When she died at 81 of apoplexy, she did so after arguing with a maid over the virtues of skim milk. I swear I read this in several articles, which is an insane fact. I don't know if anybody's joking, but that's what it said. Estimates of her net worth ranged from 100 million to 200 million, the equivalent of 2.35 billion to 4.7 billion today, making her arguably the richest woman in the world at the time. At the end of the 19th century, in around the 1880s, there were white women working and earning a living wage, mostly single white women. Only 7% of married white women were working. However, about 36% of black married women were working, and 75% of black single women were working. This is quite a lot more. You can see that the reasons for this were the expectation of a black woman to work, but also because of the discrimination against black men at the time, which resulted in lower wages and less stable employment compared to white men. And this meant that black women had to be breadwinners as well. African Americans in this country were historically two-parent incomes. And if you're a mom, you know that that creates all kinds of complications in regards to childcare. And this contributed to a devaluation as mothers with caregiving needs at home. During the late 19th century, women entered factories in large numbers, working 14 hours a day, six days a week in dangerous jobs for very low pay. In response to these working conditions, young female textile workers organized America's first industrial protests, strikes, and reform groups. Despite these efforts, women were generally excluded from the larger labor movement. Conforming to this societal view that a woman's place was in the home, the labor movement advocated for a family wage, high enough that a husband could independently support his family. But in the 20th century, the suffrage movement ideas about women's roles began to change, and hundreds of thousands of clothing workers organized the International Ladies' Garment Workers' Union. Mary Harris Jones redefined the gender norms of the day to become one of America's most prominent labor organizers. Through unity with their male co-workers, shop floor organizing, strikes, and militancy, women demonstrated that they could secure union recognition, higher wages, and shorter work hours from their employers. Their New York protest in 1911, after the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory fire, which cost 146 workers their lives and led to new laws for better working conditions, for the first time, women became powerful allies in a common cause with their union brothers. In the early 1900s, most employers would only hire black women in domestic service work, the low-wage women's jobs that involve cooking, cleaning, and caregiving. Discriminatory public policies contributed to black women's lack of wealth. There were protective welfare policies that enabled poor, lone white mothers to stay at home and provide care for their children. They were the Mothers' Pensions and the Social Security Act of 1935, but black women were denied them. 
the state simultaneously undermined the well-being of Black families by denying Black mothers the cash assistance that they needed to support their children, leaving Black women with no other option but to work for very low wages while they still had children at home. During most wars, women would jump in to fill positions while men were overseas fighting. In addition to the Rosie the Riveter factory worker, many women enjoyed high-paying positions at this time in a variety of fields. They enjoyed this personal and financial independence, especially during World War II. But after losing high-paying union jobs after the war, millions of women sought new opportunities in the female-dominated sectors, retail, health, education, and service industry jobs. And in these areas, hours were long, wages were low, benefits were few, and union organization was weak. These conditions, along with persistent patriarchal views on women in the workforce, gave rise to a second wave of feminism, which had a profound impact on labor. When federal anti-discrimination laws were introduced in the early 1960s, Organized labor under pressure from the emerging feminist movement supported sex discrimination prohibitions in both the Equal Pay Act of 1963 and the Civil Rights Act of 1964. There were a few things that happened in the 1970s that really allowed women to join the workforce in a way that would contribute to their careers and financial freedom. In 1972, the birth control pill became legal for unmarried women. And this is when you really saw women joining the workforce in droves. You also saw an uptick in women going to college and university. And in 1974, it became legal for a woman to open up a credit card or take out a bank loan in her own name without the permission of her husband or her father, which had been the law prior to that. And that law was changed by a woman named Lindy Boggs, who represented this movement in Washington, this really allowed women to be able to have financial independence and not have to ask permission for money. Besides getting over this patriarchal view of women not being able to get a home loan without the permission of their husband or father, we were still dealing with and still do deal with discrimination when it comes to getting bank loans for people of color. And that has largely contributed to disparities um, in wealth between the white community and the black community, as well as in other people of color and immigrants all over this country. So we see large gaps there because of the inability to acquire wealth over time that comes from ownership of property. Also in the 70s, in 1978, the Pregnancy and Discrimination Act prohibited employers from treating a woman unfavorably because of pregnancy, childbirth, or a medical condition related to childbirth. And the Family and Medical Leave Act of 1993, FMLA, requires 12 weeks of unpaid leave annually for mothers of newborns or newly adopted children if they work for a company with 50 or more employees. And both of these things are really amazing when it comes to women in the workforce because many women are mothers or many women are caregivers of their elderly parents. And this really did allow women to stay in the workforce and to build their career and then thus to build their wealth. FMLA is great if you work a desk job and you have benefits, but if you're in a service job, you don't have those benefits. 
They're low paying. They have inflexible hours. They lack employer-provided retirement plans, health insurance, paid sick and maternity leave, and paid vacations. Here's a statistic. Over one-third of Black women workers lack paid sick leave. And this is problematic since 80% of Black mothers are breadwinners in their families. So how do women get ahead? If we're relegated to these types of positions and we don't have these benefits and we still have to raise children, when does the work stop and how does the wealth get acquired? Okay, so we're still waiting for equal pay for equal work and benefits and laws to change for our equality. But there's a whole other element. Tracy Spicer states that women spend on average two full working weeks a year. That is Monday through Friday, twice. Two weeks vacation, beautifying themselves. Waxing, facials, drying our hair, doing our makeup, all done to fit societal expectations of a woman's appearance. She also says that this loss of time is a loss of productivity, which can impact our ability to bring in money. Plus, women are on average paid less than men and yet are spending more for toiletries and beauty products than men are. This is called the pink tax. Guys, pink razors at the store cost more than the blue ones and they are exactly the same. All of this insanity affects our bank accounts and our ability to be financially independent. Why do I have to pay more for my blouse to be dry cleaned than my husband's? His shirt is bigger. And then there's this second shift, that unpaid domestic labor that seems to so naturally fall into the hands of women. Child rearing, shopping, cooking, laundry, cleaning, all of this after a full day of work or having to take care of an ailing parent, a responsibility that also falls to women more often than men. But what happens is women are spending time doing these things. And the time that they're spending doing these things is time that they're not spending being productive, working on their careers, and thus making money. So there's an imbalance. Like I said in the beginning of this, we don't value women's time the way we value men's time. And there's lots of reasons for that. It's in our consciousness. It's the way our society and our government has been set up. It's the way the workforce has been set up. It's a patriarchy. It's all of it. But what we really need is equality. And that's why we have our next guest coming on, Carol Jenkins from the ERA Coalition. Carol Jenkins is an advocate for human, civil, and women's rights, an award-winning author, an Emmy-winning former television journalist. As a pioneering African-American television reporter, Jenkins was an anchor and correspondent for WNBC-TV in New York for nearly 25 years. She earned a BA from Boston University and an MA from New York University. Previously, Carol Jenkins was founding president of the Women's Media Center, a national nonprofit organization created to increase coverage and participation of women in media. As president, she conceived the Progressive Women's Voices Program to provide media training for women and girls, and she expanded SheSource, the largest portfolio of women experts in the country. Carol Jenkins is president and CEO of the ERA Coalition and the Fund for Women's Equality, sister organizations dedicated to the adoption of the Equal Rights Amendment. Here to talk to us today is Carol Jenkins. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. 
Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, price line. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. First of all, Carol, thank you so much for being with us today. So a lot of people believe that equal rights for women already exist under the Constitution. What specifically are some of the biggest changes that we can expect when the ERA is finally written into law, especially in regards to equal pay for equal work? Well, it's my pleasure to be here. And thanks to you both for giving us the soundtrack for our work. (laughs) You are fantastic and you know, it's just so encouraging and uplifting. You're so smart and so sharp and, you know, both the music and the podcast are are terrific. So I will say that most people who think uh, that equality is written into the Constitution, uh, it's not. Uh, and we've been working for a hundred years on the Equal Rights Amendment to actually put it into the Constitution. You know, as, as you may know, it was written by a white men, mostly slaveholding, landholding men whose concept of what equality was was different than ours would be today, for sure. Uh, Certainly the enslaved people were not included. I mean, we could almost understand that because in that day they were absolutely property uh, and and who could even think that they would have rights uh, uh, in our world, in our society as it existed. But the women, that's another thing. Uh, They left the women out as well. So the Constitution was written for white, slaveholding, landholding men. Now, in their, I guess, crystal ball looking into the future, they thought that there might need to be fixes as it went along, and those fixes are amendments to the Constitution. And our Constitution has been amended 27 times already. The Equal Rights Amendment would be the 28th. And what it would say simply is that one cannot be discriminated against based on one's sex. So many people think, let's put women in the Constitution. That's what it says. Let's diminish men. It doesn't say any of that. It just says, whoever you are and whatever your sex, you cannot be discriminated against because of sex. So that's it. That's it, guys. That's (laughs) it. The president of the Equal Rights Amendment Coalition just told you that's it. No discrimination because of your gender. I don't understand how that could be a threat. Uh, One of the things that I want to make sure that everyone understands is that uh, Congress has already passed the Equal Rights Amendment in 1972 by a two-thirds you know, majority, what was required. And then it went out to the states, and 38 states have now ratified it. So the only thing that we're dealing with in Congress now is the removal of a time limit that was placed on the ERA. So the ERA is passed. It's just a question of this time limit that keeps getting in our way. Congress extended that first seven years our time limit to 10 years. Uh, And so we believe that Congress can remove it, which is what 
is going on in the House that just passed it and what will happen in the Senate. They have to do it in the same session. So we're hoping that we can we can get this done and the begging will be over and the equal playing field will be established. What happens is that the amendment in first blush affects the federal government and all states. You know, some people say, mm-hmm. well, that's a small... I said, no, that's millions and millions of people who, because with any of the of the governments, it's anybody who has a contract with anyone who, so it widens out. So that is the first step. You know, the federal government will have to evaluate everything that they're doing. The uh, legislator, legislators in every state will have to evaluate how they have not been uh, rising to the equality of the ERA. And what we've seen already in the push for this is that the private corporate America, private life, private actors, as they are called, you know, will be forced into uh, matching, you know, what's happening in the federal government, in the governments. So, um, you know, it's going to be uh, a lot of work to do to, to actually undo the persecution and discrimination against uh, people based on their sex. So, you know, men should be glad too. You know, Ruth Bader Ginsburg was very wise when, you know, several of her major lawsuits were based on rights for men as opposed to women, uh, and then made and made it better for everybody. So, I think that, you know, this is going to make the world better for everybody. I also don't understand how this could ever be a partisan issue. You know, the vote to remove the deadline on the ERA passed this week in the House of Representatives, woo woo, woo with woo. 222 votes in support and 204 votes against. And these numbers were so shocking to me. One in particular is there's 13 Republican women representing represented in the House and only four Republican votes one of them was a woman, one woman from Staten only Island, only one woman. And you'll notice when, if you go back and you look at the arguments, because there's time to debate pro and con on the floor, mm-hmm. it was almost all women on both sides doing the debating. So Republican women were against the Equal Rights Amendment. So, you know, also we have a, when- a lot of work. Also, when polled, though, it appears that like 90% of Republicans support the amendment. Why do you think that's not being represented in the House with the votes? Well, it's something like the rescue plan that just, uh, you know, has been placed in actual reality now, you know, Mm -hmm. where it was in in the House, there was not one Republican who voted for it in the Senate as well. so that we're talking about a small group of people. But if you do any of the polling on the rescue plan, it is tremendously favorable in the 70, 80, 90% category, including Republican Republicans out there, <laughs> not, mm-hmm. not in the House chamber or the Senate chamber. So it is a, you know, in real life, where they could understand that we need help, you know, but in the political world, of this Democrat versus Republican world, the Republicans are not giving in on much. Uh, so I think uh, one of the things that we need to realize is that even though people are elected to office, they often do not represent their constituents. So mm-hmm. we know that this huge number of everyone, including Republicans, supports the rescue plan. And it's the same thing with the Equal Rights Amendment. You know, score is, is tremendously high. 
The lowest we've seen recently is 80%, you know, and it goes up from there of people who say, yes, we need equality. It would be a good thing to just say out loud that women are equal to men, that we're all equal, no matter what your gender, uh, we're all equal in, on this earth and in this country, uh, but it's a battle. I still can't believe that we're having this discussion in 2021. Speaking of the passing of the Equal Rights Amendment, how do you think that that would impact equal pay for equal work? Well, this is a, uh, the way this was written, and we should say written by Alice Paul and the version that we're still trying to get, you know, in, published onto the Constitution, uh, was written in 1923 by Alice Paul. So that's why we're approaching 100 years of working on this particular version. Uh, so one of the things that would drastically uh, change is that women and all people would be considered full constitutionally represented human beings. So what happens if you are given that right? What I always say to people, if you, we've had so many, you know, protests, you know, George Floyd and Breonna Taylor, uh, you know, there's uh, racism and there's sexism, certainly, you know, with all of the, even the brand new Me Too allegations of men, powerful men being, you know, uh, accused of sexual, you know, ag aggression. Um, if you, if you had an equal rights amendment, uh, then you would have recourse. Uh, what mm -hmm. we don't have now uh, is that there is a lot of yelling and screaming, but if you, if you are talking about equal pay, which is what most people refer to, is that we know fully well in the marking of it in the equal pay days that happen year after year, which drives me crazy, and there's no progress made. We know that it takes the average woman, you know, months to make what a white man made the year before, a black woman even longer than that, a Latina woman almost has to work for another year before she makes what a white man made the year before. So we have substantial uh, barriers to equal pay, and we've tried everything else. Uh, untold millions, trillions of dollars, and you know this from, you know, reading history and uh, diversity, you know, let's uh, have equal pay in the workforce. Let's work on that. It doesn't work because the root of the sexism and racism is in the Constitution. And until we remove that and until there is a cultural acceptance that there should be equality. I think we'll still be uh, up against, uh, you know, real hardcore barriers. Mm -hmm. I've wondered this a lot. Do you think there should be transparency in like corporate America in terms of salaries? Like one of my favorite quotes is um, you can't clean a house in the dark. So would transparency put the pressure on large companies to like adjust salaries for equal pay, equal work? And could we then kind of push that more once the Equal Rights Amendment is passed. Yeah, ab absolutely. And, you know, we've worked with some good companies, you know, the ones who we thought and they thought were doing the right thing. Uh, we pay our women the same thing we pay our men. And when they have actually gone in, that was their intent. When they've actually gone in, they have discovered that they have to make up to the millions of dollars for what the difference between what the women and men were making. Those are the good guys. So yes, I do believe that transparency would absolutely help. But I think we're getting there. Many, many more corporations. I love this new proposal by NASDAQ that says that if you want to be listed 
uh, on our company, you have to have a woman on the board and another, you know, a diverse person on. And something like 80% of the companies who are now listed there do not meet that criteria. So it's from the boardroom all the way down to, you know, the people pushing the cleaning carts at night who still, you know, may be suffering discrepancy in income. Mm-hmm. Uh, and what I've been made privy to, too, is instead of it being equal pay, equal work, businesses are getting around it by just changing the job titles of women. So your workload is the same. Your job title is different. And then that allows them to pay you right, less. Right. So, right. gosh, the more you know. <laughs> right. But, you know, what I think consistently people don't understand about America and its business is that America has become extremely profitable by uh, its uh, cheap labor, you know, it's women, mm-hmm. and it's a diverse population who are all consistently underpaid. So America is very wealthy. We're a rich nation, and that was built on the backs, I believe, of unfair uh, paying of, uh, of women and others, you know, who don't qualify as white male patriarchal, you know, this is who should be working, this is who should succeed, this is who should make, I don't know what the multiple of it is now of the top uh, CEO to what the employees make, but a grand multiple, multiple, multiples of. uh, And so corporate America has to be examined. And I think many of them are coming around to understand when you set up criteria like that. Do you have a woman on your board? No. Do you have? Mm -hmm. You can't be listed. Um, You know, those are the ways that we need to go forward. And with the Equal Rights Amendment, many more of those principles will be set in place. So people will be accountable. Right now, there is no accountability for discriminating against women. You may have a few lawsuits, but it's a lawsuit by lawsuit by lawsuit, as opposed to sweeping equality for all. And I think that's where we need to be. Mm -hmm. What advice would you give women in low-wage jobs who want to enter high-paying careers? Well, I don't know. You know, I think we have seen uh, during this pandemic, who the low-wage uh, people are, the essential workers, um, I, th- I think we have to do a better job uh, at our education system and its access to our education system. We know now that there are, we can't even count how many children haven't been in school for an entire year, uh, who don't have Wi-Fi. Uh, who don't have parents who can afford to stay home with them to oversee their remote learning. Uh, so this huge discrepancy in poverty uh, and in education has to be, you know, has to be addressed. So I would say the, fir- the first thing that women who are trying to move up should understand is that it is not your fault. The system is rigged against you. Uh, And what you have to do is to, with all of us working together, you know, to help, you know, this uh, mass movement upwards. Uh, But, you know, when people say to me, why would we need the ERA? You know, we're the richest country. You know, and I say, have you really looked around? Do you know who the poor are, the impoverished? It's mostly women. And do you know who the starving are? who cannot count on meals, it's mostly their children. You know, one out of three, I mean, all right, I'll say if you want to say one out of four, but that's still too many children who are food insecure in this country. And that is why people are making such a big thing over the tax credit for, you know, for children when they say we're going to lift half of the poor children, the impoverished children, 
out of poverty with this with this bill, you know, and I say, that's great. What about the other half? You know, we still have 100%. millions of children who are starving mm-hmm. in this country. So I think that's one of the reasons we need the Equal Rights Amendment. Women need to be paid. All need to be paid equally and higher and more and need to be given the access to move up the, you know, move up the ladder. And I think that what what the way it's described is that many women, especially if they have children, are kicked off the ladder. You know, that that rung in the ladder is removed permanently so that they never even have a rung to move up on uh, because they're so busy working two or three jobs, you know, trying to feed their children or keep a roof over their heads. So when we say we need the Equal Rights Amendment, it's not an abstract legal concept. It is a day-to-day live or die concept of who is going to eat, who is going to live. We know mm-hmm. in the uh, sector workers who's going to survive COVID and who is not. Uh, and so, so much of this will be made much better by an equal rights amendment. So, you know, I, I'm going to bring up something that I'm talking about when, when we talk about the history of, of women working and making money. And, one of the things that I've mentioned was that nearly a third of 28% of black women are employed in service jobs compared to just one fifth of white women. And many of these service jobs, they're low paying, they're inflexible, they lack employee provided retirement plans and health insurance and paid sick and maternity leave and paid vacations. And over a third, 36% of black women workers lack paid sick leave. So it's not just about making the same dollar amount. It's also about the fact that the jobs don't have benefits and don't have flexibility and and that the women who are mothers their motherhood is completely dismissed and you know i i think that it was back i want to say in the in, around in the 20s when the when the first welfare act came for women black women were not able to get it and and so they were uh made to feel like they had to be in the workplace and had to deny their being able to raise their kids and have childcare, which is why I really feel like certain things like um, universal pre-K, it would be so helpful to people who are, to women who are essential workers. Um, it would be so helpful to have childcare as a part of of what we offer when we offer benefits, or I, I'm not sure how it could work, but I really do because I think that you, you're, when you're talking about women in the workplace, you also have to notice that many women are moms. I know. I don't know if you have any thoughts about that. Yeah, but. I do. It's it's interesting that you talk about uh, the the government because it is the government of the United States that is uh, 
mostly responsible for the gap that we see now between black and white and, you know, uh, because, you know, the whole idea of owning a home was only available to whites, you know, black were not uh, eligible to get mortgages or to, so, you know, we went from these sprawling uh, plots of land where houses were being built and whites were being given uh, the ability to get mortgages and the complementary picture of that that ver- that uh, horizontal stretch is the vertical, you know, slum that was being built. The only thing that was available to black people in this country was high- sky high rents in tiny uh, apartments. Uh, and that's where you see the beginning of this, uh, you know, true discrimination. So the U.S. government created the middle class in America and it did not include black people. So uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> there is there is that we have to go again to the root of how did this happen? You know that the you know that the the wealth gap of between white a white woman and a black woman could be a white woman who has thousands of dollars based often on that home ownership that's trailed through the family mm-hmm. generational generational wealth. wealth. Mm-hmm. And the wealth of a black woman, I think, right now is it like at five dollars or something like that. And it is because there is no opportunity to save anything or to build on anything. Uh, and we have mm-hmm. to understand that, you know, to, for a woman to go to work, uh, she has to have childcare. And childcare is a thing that's gotten astronomically expensive. You know, so it's, uh, you know, women are working literally two and three jobs, if not more, to try to keep their families afloat. And, you know, I know a big fight over the $15 an hour wage, you know, in some places they're getting $5, you know, or $7, you know, here in New York, I think, you know, it's like people cannot live on the expectations uh, that were set years ago. Uh, And so we really, as a people have to understand this. Again, I wanna say, you know, to the people who are there and doing this, it is not your fault, you know, that you are working for $5 an hour on four jobs to support your family. You know, the system is broken uh, and, uh, you know, and the system unfairly penalizes women. So uh, we have to understand, all of us need to understand that what was begun in the writing of our constitution, so those hundreds of years ago, is still playing out today. Uh, And it is the basic assumption that women are not people. You know, they're somehow uh, sub-people. And that it's okay for us to be begging for equality a hundred years after this you know, a bill, this amendment was introduced, it's okay to continue to beg. And, you know, what we're saying at the ERA coalition, that's it's enough begging already. You know, we just, as a group, as women have to say, I'm sorry, you know, that, um, you know, it is, it is time for us to grow up as a, as a country. Uh, And we can't grow Mm -hmm. up until we're all treated equally. And the only way we can get that is by fixing the constitution. Yeah. That really is the key to unlock all of the other policy that needs to come after it. I mean, I know just for me, I was working um, as a waitress in New York City. And when all of my male counterparts could take public transportation home, I had to pay for an Uber 
it's really expensive running late because I can't walk and I can't take the subways past a certain time. And it's funny, there's the pink tax, but there's so much that goes along with the pink tax just to keep yourself safe and not murdered. You know, there's, there's so much to think about. I was actually wondering as you were speaking um, about... I, I sometimes wish policy could get more specific instead of the broad strokes because about minimum wage, I obviously think that we people need to have a living wage. But I wonder if we could make it specific to big companies because I've been thinking a lot about small businesses and how after surviving this huge recession and COVID, how do we then expect them to give everyone a raise? But then you can have those expect and not crumble, right. but you can have those expectations from the Walmarts and the Amazons. So is there a way to um, write policy and because I don't know the answer to any of this, that, that is more specific where it won't just ruin small businesses? And- yeah, I think I think it exists. Most people understand that under a certain no- level of employees, you know, there are considerations, you know, to be made. You know, if you've got five employees uh, and, you know, and, and Amazon has, you know, I don't know how, you know, so. Uh, but but Amazon stepped up to the fifteen dollars an hour. But you know they're under a, a huge unionization uh, effort right now, and it may bring back unions. I think you know this is uh, the beginning of uh, the restoration of unions to some level of respect, because mm-hmm. we see that without. Uh, Broad-based support without others with you, you know, lone people arguing for more pay uh, simply doesn't work. So I think uh, I think we're beginning to see the beginning of uh, the rise of unions once again. Uh, you know, after falling into disfavor for so many years. But you know, everybody expected the same thing with women. You know, in the old days, we used to talk about the pipeline. That the reason we didn't need the ERA was because women were in the pipeline, and some someday soon they would all emerge. You know, and we'd fifty percent mm-hmm. of corporations, we'd be a president, we'd be all of that. And the pipeline is still full of women, but no one has no no numbers <laughs> of persons ever have emerged yet to give us 50% in anything almost. So, yeah. um, we're still in the trenches. Still in that pipeline. And this is still coming back around kind of to what we were talking about before, how women were voting against the extending the ERA is not only do we need to vote for women, we need to vote for women that are advocates of women. And we need to have female CEOs that are going to advocate and hire other women because we do have women that, that aren't supportive and aren't going to bring other people up. Right, right. Um, I want to ask you just a couple more questions. Uh, they're they're slightly off of topic, but I, I'm curious. Um, one has to do mm-hmm. with the pink tax. So not only are women paid less on average, they pay more for the same products or services simply because of their gender, like razors or dry cleaning, girl toys versus boy toys, pants from Old Navy. Uh this this costs women an average of $1,300 more a year. And if you do the math and someone has a long life, this is over $100,000 in their lifetime. How do you think that the passing of the ERA will help to eliminate this type yeah, of discrimination? The paying tax. Um, you know, I refer to this as one of the accepted invisible <laughs> discriminatory acts that takes place because it all, for instance, menstrual products only affect women, and and for all of 
life, you know, we've been paying this with most people not protesting, you know, it's just assumed, of course, we'll pay more, you know, mm-hmm. we're women, you know, even though we are, you know, even we or though we are paid less, we will pay more for our blouses to be clean for, you know, uh, it's just such a crazy thing. Uh, Jennifer Weiss-Wolf at the Brennan Center has done a lot of work in this, uh, in this area. It is clearly the invisible uh, discrimination that we've all gotten so used to that we don't say, wait a minute, you know, this is simply not fair and it has to change. So, you know, I think uh, certainly the Equal Rights Amendment, uh, you know, will, you know, we'll do away with that. Uh, and uh, I, you know, but again, can you imagine that something as simple as dry cleaning would go to the core of what the woman's problem is in America? <laughs> Forget about everything else. You know, you have a, you have a blouse, you're going to pay more for it than a man who has a shirt, you know, I, uh, it's extraordinary. And we have to have 20 more blouses than he needs the one shirt because he's allowed to wear one thing every single day. But (laughs) I say this is, this is, this requires a a woman's uprising. You know, we just have to, you know, and one of, one of our team members today was saying, you know, that when she's in the drugstore and she's, she does the comparison shopping, you know, the woman's scrub brush brush versus the man's scrub. I'm going to take the man's because it's half Mm -hmm. the price, you know, (laughs) And who's going to come to my bathroom, I suppose, you know, to know the difference. But it's uh, that's an extraordinary um, thing that we have all assumed was just the way of the world. You know, we would just have to pay this because that's what women do. And there's a million commercials geared right toward us telling us that we need all of this for our identity. You know, it's interesting. I'm so excited about this amendment finally being published and being in the Constitution. I've had so many jobs that I was afraid to lose where I didn't feel like I was able to speak up for myself. I didn't feel like I was able to ask certain questions about why I was getting paid or how I was being treated for fear of losing that job that I needed because it's harder for me to get a job than it is for a man. It's harder for me to be taken seriously. So to have that backing in the constitution, when it says all men are created equal, for that to actually mean all people and not just all men is really a confidence boost, if nothing else, to go into those situations and advocate for myself as a woman and advocate for other women. Because some people who have said, well, the ERA is only a symbol. And I say, what a great symbol. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Can you imagine all of what it does for all of our little girls and all of, uh, you know, this. Okay, so make it symbolic, you know. And another thing that people say, well, but the ERA doesn't do everything. And I say, okay, but does it have to do everything? <laughs> what? Why can't it just improve our lives, you know, in a dramatic way? I don't think we should put the burden on the ERA that it has to solve every single problem that women have. It certainly will create a level playing field, give us a floor with uh, fundamental constitutional rights, um, and that's. You know, if it's a symbol, you know, let's take it, you know. Um, It's a foundation we can build upon. 100%. And protection for the future. We don't know who our future leaders are going to be. We don't know the positions that we're going to be in. And if this isn't embedded in the Constitution, then anything can happen. So it really is. You see what we're faced with now that the Voting Rights Act, which was cut back by Congress. Uh, So uh, that's why we are seeking an amendment uh, 
uh, as opposed to an act, you know, or a bill or whatever, because we want it to be permanent yeah. and a part of our uh, constitution. Yes. Because what just happened with the Violence Against Women Act being not being active when we really needed it during coronavirus. That affected women's jobs the most. Women were forced to move back in with abusers in a lot of situations. Domestic violence was so high. Shelters were full. And we didn't have the protection because that act wasn't. And now, thank God, the Violence Against Women Act has passed and we have it again and we're going to have some support. And now the Violence Against Women Act has passed in Congress and hopefully it will pass in the Senate and we can finally get these women the support that they have so desperately needed. Right, right. So we're, we're all, we thought it was just so, so sweet that uh, the Violence Against Women Act and the ERA were passed by the House of Representatives on the very same day. You know, the sort mm-hmm. of, it's a complementary uh, way of looking uh, at women and looking at our, at our country. And now we're faced with the very same thing, uh, going to the Senate where it will require, because of the 60-vote requirement, we have uh, 50 uh, Democrats who all support the ERA. Uh, we have two Republicans, Lisa Murkowski and Susan Collins, who support the ERA. But that brings us like eight senators shy for passage uh, of the drop the time limit resolution. The same thing with VAWA. Uh, we in the House of Representatives last year had a resounding passage of this bill, and then it just sat in the Senate along with hundreds of other good ideas that never got taken up. But now, because we have a new administration who supports the Equal Rights Amendment and VAWA, certainly, uh, a new Senate, which is 50-50 with a vice presidential tiebreaker, uh, Kamala Harris, uh, we're in a better situation, but we're not there yet because Unless some roundabout way is found, whether it's doing away with filibuster or some uh, maneuver, uh, at the moment we still require eight Republican votes that we are now working to to get. We're doing a briefing uh, in the Senate next week for the Senate staff uh, so that uh, they can take back to their bosses, you know, what this uh, amendment is all about and if why and why we need it now, uh, as opposed to you know, uh, shelving it. And once again, saying to the women of America that you don't count, you don't matter. And it doesn't matter that their constituents and, you know, the approval rate is sky high in the country for, for the Equal Rights Amendment and the Violence Against Women Act. Uh, these particular few people, you know, sitting in the United States Senate are going to block uh, that for millions of women, block both of those bills for millions of women. So. It seems like a crazy thing to be against. What is the most compelling argument against passing the ERA in the Senate? Well, there are those who argue with, uh, you know, our argument that we've met all of the requirements in Article 5. And so they're holding on to the time limit that was actually in the preamble or the introduction to the amendment, not anything that the states voted on. Uh, but they want to hold us, uh, you know, to that. There are some who believe. Uh, that because of the recent uh, Supreme Court decision on uh, trans and LGBTQ rights, uh, that uh, that they are now included uh, in this bill, and they certainly are. <laughs> and then there are those who believe that uh, this that the Equal Rights Amendment gives abortion 
you know, free to everyone. And, you know, what we say is abortion is the rule of law of the land. Uh, the Equal Rights Amendment is a fundamental constitutional redoing of who is included and who cannot be discriminated against and that people cannot be discriminated based on sex. So, uh, so we have some substantial, you know, people and, and, you know, what we say is that we, you know, we get it. We understand people have their, their views and their beliefs. So we're not challenging their beliefs. The only thing we are challenging is what the Equal Rights Amendment does. Uh, and, you know, mm-hmm. not that they're not, you know, they can't own their beliefs in so many areas. So, um, you know, so it's a complicated situation, you know, but yeah. uh, we're hopeful that uh, this, given the new administration, the new Senate, the overwhelming support in the country for this, that we should be able to do this this year. Wow. And then, you know, so I, I know our song is about equal pay, but really the root of getting equal pay is having equality first and having everything from bodily autonomy to just having the same opportunities as everybody else to recognizing the unfair things like the pink tax that are existing and starting to like level all of that out. All of this is one issue. And it really starts with having the constitution be aware of women. And I'm just so grateful for the work that you have done and your career has been so immense and to have someone as smart and as compassionate and passionate as you are like leading this coalition. is just such a gift to thank women. You so thank too. you. Are you kidding again for the soundtrack yeah. that, you know, inspires <laughs> us, you know, and when we have those low days, we said, let's listen. <laughs> well, it is yours. Use it in whatever you want. Any of our songs, they are free yeah. for you. You just, when this thing passes, that's we'll right. do a big old oh, concert so for you. Great. We're going to look forward to that. All the more reason we get a concert <laughs> if we pass the e if we get the ERA published, it's passed already. If we can get it published, that would be fabulous. <laughs> you both are tremendous. Yeah. Thank you so much. Thank you for being here, Carol. No, it's my pleasure. Thank you for the opportunity. Money, 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 money. Where's my money, bitch? Thanks for listening. Hope you have enough for a cap fair home tonight. I'm Laura Bell Bundy, and you can find me on Venmo at at larabelle-bundy. I'm Shay Carter, and you can find my feet on OnlyFans, or you can find me on Venmo or the Cash App, at Shay Shay Carter. We want to thank Carol Jenkins for being with us today. And I'll leave you guys with one last thought. When I finally die, check everywhere. There's a drawer full of cash near my underwear. And you want to see Shay's feet. To watch the queen ascend Baby, how you feeling Breaking that glass ceiling Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work 
or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the Rise Theater directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E dot org because only together we rise. Hi, y'all. This is Kristen Chenoweth. Hi, I'm Gloria Stefan. This is Sarah Bareilles. Hi, I'm Patty Lapone. This is Lynn Manuel Miranda. You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network.